Oh, Lord God, you are holy, and we cry out to you, our holy God, knowing, Lord, that we are not worthy as sinners to come into your presence. We are not worthy, Father, of being near you, but, Father, we are deserving of your judgment. And yet, Father, you are the loving God who willingly sent your Son to be our sin-bearer, to take your judgment, to take, to take your wrath upon us, to take the judgment that we deserved, Father. Father, we pray that you would help us to see not only the stark reality for sinners if they will not repent today, but also, Father, the great light that has been shown for those who will turn from their sins and embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I pray this in his name. This morning, as we begin, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of first century Israelites for just a moment. And imagine with me that you just saw Jesus walk before you. His appearance is pretty normal to you with, with a Middle Eastern skin tone, probably a full beard, and he's wearing pretty common Jewish attire. He looks just about like every other 30-something man that you have ever seen. In fact, the only way that you would know that this man called Jesus was the Messiah long promised is if he did something truly extraordinary, something far beyond his standard physical appearance. For you to know that about him, he would need to start performing the miracles that were prophesied by God's prophets, and he would need to start proclaiming the arrival of God's victorious kingdom to Israel. Now, imagine he started doing just that, performing incredible miracles and teaching with unmatched authority as he declared the kingdom's arrival. He gives all kinds of evidence that he is precisely who he and others say that he is, but there is something about him that you don't like. Something about this man named Jesus that rubs you the wrong way. He keeps telling you and your people, the Israelites, the chosen people of God who'd been waiting for God's promised Messiah, he keeps telling you to repent, to turn aside from your sinfulness before your God. He doesn't save this message for the Gentiles alone, those idol worshipers of other nations. No, he puts this message of repentance front and center for the Jews. And even though you are in awe of his power, and you are impressed by his boldness, you want him to restore the glory of Israel instead of telling everyone in Israel to turn from their sin. You want him to make Israel great again. You don't want him to tell Israel to turn from their sin. So instead of believing in him and following him as the Messiah, you reject him in hopes that a different king will come who is more to your liking. 
Well, this Jesus, he looks just like everyone else, though he performs deeds that no one but God could do, and instead of receiving him, you refuse him. Instead of repenting and believing, you start rejecting. Now, we can be tempted today to shake our heads at these Israelites and pridefully think, how could they have missed it so badly? How could they have been so wrong? How could they have rejected Jesus as their king? Because the evidence seems so abundantly clear. But in reality, this self-righteous rejection is all around us still today. For the bulk of our generation still wants a different kind of king. Now last week, if you recall, Jesus communicated to the crowd of Israelites that they wickedly desired a different Messiah than the one who had been graciously provided to them. He said, if you remember, that they were like children sitting in the marketplace who cried out to their playmates, verse 17, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. In other words, we wanted you to do this for us, but you wouldn't do it. We wanted you to be this for us, but you were something else entirely. These children were dissatisfied with Jesus as their Messiah. And remember how they treated the Lord and John, his messenger. In verse 18 of Matthew 11, it says, John, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man, a name for Jesus, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus comes, he reveals himself, and they cast aspersions upon him. They, they slander him. And today, building off of last week, we're going to briefly look through this short text, verses 20 through 24, that were just read. And then we're going to consider three important theological realities behind Christ's words here, and what those realities should lead us to do. So first of all, let's briefly look at this text, verses 20 through 24. In these verses, King Jesus rebukes those who want a different king. King Jesus, he rebukes those who want a different king. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Jesus rebuked the cities of Galilee where he performed the bulk of his ministry because these cities had seen firsthand his mighty works. It says most of his works had been done in these towns. Think about all of the incredible works of wonder that we have considered thus far in Matthew as Jesus went about the land of Galilee. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says that he went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So as he went about, he was healing people left and right. 
And as we saw in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, that evening they brought to him, Jesus, many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. No demonic forces have stood against Jesus. He's been able to push them all out, and he has healed every sick person that he attempted to heal. And Jesus now denounces them. He denounces them. Because though they had witnessed the works that the prophets said the Messiah would perform, they would not turn from their sins and accept him as the Christ. Jesus says in verse 20, they did not repent. Which is to turn away from your sin and towards God. With grief over your sin and a desire to start honoring God. You see, Jesus has been going around the Galilean countryside calling the people of Israel to do a 180, to flip the script, to turn from their selfish righteousness and their foolish attempts to keep God's law in their own strength and towards the righteous Messiah who had been provided by God himself. As Leon Morris writes, Jesus is calling for a revolution in the whole of life. He is calling for people to change their whole direction away from sin and toward God. He's calling people to do a 180. But they would not do it. They would not do it. At least the bulk of the people would not do it. Which put them right in line with every generation of Israelites from the past. We spent months going through the book of Judges, and you saw the character of human beings as exemplified by the people of Israel again and again and again turning to sin, again and again and again rejecting their God as their king over them. As the psalmist says in Psalm 81, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. This has been the story ever since God first called his people Israel out of Egypt. Though they had the great promises of God, they refused to repent and accept the gracious provision that God provided. They rebelled. So Jesus rebukes them, just like the prophets of old rebuked them with words that are reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, which say, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord, which is like to stiff-arm him. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. They are separated from their God. And first of all, Jesus rebukes the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Chorazin was a town in Galilee near Capernaum. 
Capernaum was Christ's ministry hub, so it wasn't far away. It was in the land appointed to the two tribes of Israel known as Zebulon and Naphtali. And this is significant that these two cities are in the realm of Zebulon and Naphtali, because as we learned earlier in this book, that land marked by those two tribes was an especially blessed land. Because it says in Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That great light which was shown to the people of Chorazin was the light of Jesus himself, the promised Messiah who would save his people from their sins. It was a light that could dispel all the darkness. It could kick out all the sin, and it could free them from the shadow of death upon which they walked. And Bethsaida, Bethsaida was a town in the same neck of the woods as Chorazin. For it was also near the Sea of Galilee and also near Capernaum, that town where Jesus and his disciples primarily stayed. It too was in the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, and it too had been promised a great light. And through Jesus, that light had also been shown to the people of Bethsaida. But both Chorazin and Bethsaida would not repent. The people there, by and large, remained in their self-righteousness and refused to follow their promised king. And to think about it, these were incredibly blessed towns. These towns had all the promises that God gave to their patriarch, Abraham. These towns were filled with the people of King David, the great earthly ruler who was promised by God an eternal heir upon his throne. And these towns were filled with people who had God's special revelation, the Old Testament books of the Bible. And these towns were filled with people who saw God's promises fulfilled in their days, right before their eyes, because the Messiah came to these towns and walked through these towns. He healed the people of these towns, and he preached in these towns. Perhaps no cities had ever been more blessed than cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida. But they rejected the blessing, they would not repent and turn to their Christ. And so Jesus did something that no one, no one was expecting him to do. He said to them, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe is a declaration of denunciation that is mingled with a healthy dose of terrible warning. It is like saying to them, bad things are coming your way, you evildoers, so you better get ready. That's what that little word woe means. Great trouble is about to come upon you because of your sin, and you better get ready.
Now stop and consider the sheer weight of this. The Christ was promised to them, and he came. But now, because they rejected their Christ, he says, woe to them. This is so incredibly sad. Because they would not repent, the weight of God's righteous wrath was upon them and would be experienced by them at his judgment. But Jesus goes even further, and this is where it gets truly remarkable. He goes even further, for he compares them to the Gentile idol worshipers who once resided in the nearby cities of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician, were Phoenician towns on the Mediterranean coastline, not more than 50 miles northwest of Chorazin and Bethsaida. You would find the remains of them in the nation of Lebanon today. They were often denounced in the Old Testament for their idolatry, and they were hated by the Jews because of their wickedness, as they were looked upon by the Jews as prime examples of Gentile immorality. So it is not by accident here that Jesus refers to them as he seems intent on providing his listeners with a perfect example of heinousness and evil by which to compare them. Perhaps a good way to understand what Jesus was communicating here is to connect his example with one we can understand a little better in our day. Jesus referring to Tyre and Sidon would be like us referring to Nazi Germany. Considered by many to be a prime example of wickedness. And Jesus says two sentences that are extraordinarily shocking in verses 21 and 22. He says, number one, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, that perfect example of evil, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, if Tyre and Sidon had been blessed with the same revelation that you have received, they would have seriously repented long ago. You're the blessed people and you won't repent, but if these wicked, hedonistic Gentiles had heard it, they would have repented. And secondly, he says, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In other words, when these Gentile idol worshipers stand before God's judgment, his wrath will be more bearable for them than it will be for you. So Jesus says to these Israelites, your enemies would have responded better to your God than you did, and your enemies will face a lesser judgment from your God than you will. Consider how shocking this must have sounded to the people who had only ever thought, we are the promised people of God, and God is going to only do good to us. But a people who would not repent. Secondly, Jesus rebukes Capernaum. In verse 23, it says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, 
it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now this is really the same thing that Jesus said in verses 21 and 22. But this time it's directed towards the city of Capernaum. And Jesus singles out Capernaum, I think, because Capernaum was his primary place of ministry. Capernaum was his ministry hub. Capernaum was the place where he most often slept. And Capernaum was the place where he'd done an incredible amount of miracles. At Capernaum, if you remember, Jesus healed the centurion's servant. And he said to that centurion, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. At Capernaum, Jesus healed the paralytic and said to that man, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven you. And then he said, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And it was at Capernaum that Jesus raised the, synagogue's, the synagogue ruler's daughter from the dead. So get this. The people of Capernaum had seen Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. No other place had received such a bounty of evidence that Jesus was the Messiah but Capernaum. But they too would not repent. So Jesus rebukes them in the same way he did Chorazin and Bethsaida. He says to them, will you be exalted to heaven? It's interesting, that question, it connects them with the wicked king of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14, who sought to again and again exalt himself before God out of his own pride. Jesus is connecting the people of Capernaum with the king of Babylon, who is held up as an example of wicked pride. But no, Jesus says they would not be exalted. Instead, they would be brought down to Hades. Rather than being exalted to heaven as the prideful people of Capernaum supposed, they would be sent to Hades, which was a word that described the underworld place of the dead. It's where the dead people go, especially referring to the dead people who remain in judgment by God. But instead of connecting Capernaum to Tyre and Sidon again, like he did before, he compares them now to another infamous city, which was also widely remembered in Jesus' day as one of the most wicked places that had ever been on the earth, Sodom. And he says essentially the same shocking things as before. He says, number one, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. And number two, he says, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, if you read the Bible very long, you know that again and again that name Sodom with Gomorrah pops up because it's often used as like the most egregious, the most awful people, the most awful place that has ever been on the earth. It's like us thinking of Nazi Germany. Like, they're the worst. If you want to pick the worst, they're the worst today that we think of. Throughout the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah are known as the worst. Well, Jesus again says to these Israelites, your enemies would have responded better to your God than you did, and your enemies, the people of Sodom, will face a lesser judgment from your God than you will. Woe to you. 
King Jesus rebukes those who want a different king. So that's the text. Wow, what a shocking text. And so much could be said. But I want to bring out three important theological realities that I think are behind Christ's words here in this text. Three important theological realities. Number one, God not only knows everything that has happened and will happen, but even what would have happened. God not only knows everything that has happened and will happen, but even what would have happened. Notice carefully verse 21. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Look at verse 23. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Jesus declares knowledge that no one could ever know, and he's always truthful. He declares knowledge that, o- that no one could ever know unless they not only know the past and the present and the future, but they know all the variables too. He knows all the things that would have happened had the circumstances been different. Are you grasping that? Are you tracking that with Jesus? Sometimes we just fly through these texts and we miss incredible things. If they would have done this, this would have happened. Jesus knows all the variables. He knows what would have happened if these incredible works that he was performing in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, and all the towns around Galilee, he knows what would have happened in Tyre and Sidon and in Sodom if he had done those works before those people. Jesus' knowledge is a perfect knowledge. God's knowledge, the Lord's knowledge, is a perfect knowledge. 1 John 3, verse 20, God knows everything without exception. Psalm 147, verse 5, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. So if you want to try to figure out how much understanding does God have, well, he knows the past, he knows the present, he knows the future, but this verse says that his understanding is beyond all measure, so he knows far more than I could ever comprehend. It's beyond my understanding what he knows. He understands so much information, it's, it's beyond measure, it's infinite. He even knows what would have happened. And you think about all the potential variables that could be involved here. And here's what I think this should lead us to do. When we see something like this, yeah, it should lead us to dig deeper. We're not going to go super deep here today. But it should lead us to dig deeper, but here's what I ultimately think it should do. It should lead us to worship. I can't remember what I had for dinner two days ago. 
I don't know what that little storm that's over there near Mexico was actually going to do this week. I don't know a lot of things, and I certainly don't know what would have happened if certain circumstances were changed, both in my life past and in my life ahead of me. I could guess, but I don't know anything with any certainty. And yet God above sent his son, and though he humbled himself while he was on earth, he still describes an incredible knowledge that he had. That he not only knew the past and the future, but he knows everything that would have happened too. And what that should make us do is bow down in our hearts and say, Ah, my God, me, this feeble little worm, you know all, and you've made me your own? It should make our lives filled to the brim with joy over who he is and lead us to live lives that worship him. The second theological reality that Jesus, I think, lays out for us here is that God does not owe his revelation to anyone. God does not owe his revelation to anyone. Notice again, verse 21, If the mighty works had been done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Verse 23, If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained. So if those works had been done in those cities, according to Jesus, they would have repented, they would have remained. But those works weren't done in those towns. And God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit do not owe those towns anything. Now some might ask, well, why then didn't he do those works in Tyre and Sidon and also in Sodom? Why didn't he just do that there too? And I think we must ultimately respond. There's a lot of things we could say, and I've said things before, and we'll undoubtedly say more about this in the future. But I think at the end of the day, we ultimately have to respond like the Apostle Paul did in Romans chapter 9, where he answers that question with these words. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul says, who are you to question God like that? He is the creator. He is the potter who has formed the clay. He formed you. He formed everyone you love. He formed me. He formed every person who's ever been on this earth. He is the creator, and as the creator, he is the owner, and he is the master of all. And Paul says, who are we to answer back to God and say, why have you made me like this? 
Doesn't the potter, Paul argues, have the right with this clay to make some that he's going to make beautiful for his glory and others that he's going to use to demonstrate his judgment? Does he not have the right, Paul says, to do that? The creator does not owe his creation anything. If you and I reject him, he is right to judge us. And not a single human being will ever stand before God who isn't fully deserving of God's judgment. And if God chooses to reveal himself in a saving way to some, that is his divine prerogative. And who are we to question God? And that's hard. I get that tension. I don't get that. I don't understand this. This is beyond me. How should humans then respond to God's sovereign prerogative to work according to his own plan and not according to our feeble thinking? Well, I think we respond the same way Paul did in Romans 11, verses 33 to 34. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Paul responds to all of these magnificent truths that he could never understand fully, just like I cannot understand fully and you cannot understand fully. And his response is, oh, the depth of his wisdom. I don't get it. I can't counsel him, but praise his name. There is a humility of understanding that is necessary for the Christian life. Because there are some things about the infinite mind and workings of God that we human beings cannot comprehend any more than the ducks up at Sims Park can comprehend the Newport Ritchie nightlife on a Saturday evening. We cannot fathom his ways. God's ways are too wonderful, too exceedingly perfect for us to fully grasp. And how should that make us respond? Well, we respond like Paul, with utter humility. Wow, I don't understand this, but he's great. He's beyond me. I want to worship him. I want to bow before him because he's so much higher than I. It should lead us to incredible Humility. Third. Third theological reality that Jesus gives us here. God will judge sinners according to the revelation they have received. God will judge sinners according to the revelation they have received. And by revelation, I mean God making himself known to people, revealing himself. He's revealed himself to some people more than others. And God will judge sinners according to that revelation that they have received. Look at verse 22. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
And then he says, but I tell you, verse 24, it will be more terrible on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. A little boy who grows up in pre-Reformation Germany, who's only ever told that he has to pay money to the church to get his relatives out of death, out of purgatory, and he's only ever told that he has to give enough money to the church to be able to get himself out of God's judgment, but who has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, because whenever he goes into one of those churches, he never hears the good news. All, the only thing that's ever said is in Latin, which he doesn't understand, and he can't read a lick of any book because he doesn't know how to read. This little boy is going to stand before God one day and be judged at a lesser level than every single person in this room. Because we have a level of revelation that that little boy didn't have. Jesus brings a superior revelation to this world. Listen to Hebrews 2. Please grasp this. Please get this. Hebrews 2. The writer of Hebrews, whoever that was, Paul, Luke, whoever it was, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, verse 1, Therefore, we Christians... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Why? Verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He goes on to say, It was declared at first by the Lord, this message of salvation, and it was attested to us by those who heard, the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The angels, through Moses, gave the law, and the people of Israel they will have a responsibility to the law. There will be a punishment for not repenting over the law. But how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Because something far better than the law has come. The fulfillment of the law has been arrived and is, is preached to you today. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The degree of God's judgment will be in accord with the degree of one's revelation. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, All have sinned, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So Aristotle, who maybe didn't know the law of Moses, He's going to be judged according to his own conscience. He's a sinner. He knew it in his conscience. He was an offender before God. But the Jews who had the law and walked away from them, walked away from it and from God, they're going to be judged at a different standard because they had a greater revelation. And how much more will we? You think Capernaum had it good? You think Chorazin and Bethsaida were blessed? How about the people of Riverside Baptist Church in Newport Ritchie, Florida? Think about what we have been given. 
And I am convinced that this should lead us, yes, to worship, yes, to humility, and ultimately it should lead us to repentance. That we should recognize that we have squandered the gift and we must repent and embrace it. Either for the first time, trusting in Christ as Savior and Lord, or repenting for all of the things that we have allowed to take over our lives, take over our hearts in place of God, the little idols that we've erected that we've said it's okay because everyone else around me does it. So, at the end here, I ask that we think about the degree of revelation that you and I have received in a free church, in a free land. Not only do we have the foundation of the Reformation who re-preached the gospel message and recommitted themselves to the authority of God's word, not only do we stand upon that foundation, but we stand upon several hundred years of gospel preaching in a land that has had several revivals where the gospel preaching has spread like a wave. And here we are today, people who have the gospel proclaimed in our midst. Think about the degree of revelation that you and I have received. How many Bibles are in your home and how many hundreds of Bibles are on your phone? Knowing what has been given, think of how accountable we are. With greater revelation received comes greater responsibility to believe. We have been given much, and we are accountable for much. So, with trepidation, I quote the words of Jesus, Woe to you. Woe to America if its leaders and citizens will not repent of sin. Woe to the compromised church if its ministers and congregants will not repent of their sin. Woe to the professing believer who is caught in the snares of this corrupt culture and will not repent of his or her sin. Woe to the teenager. Woe to the child. Woe to the mom and the dad and the grandpa and the grandma who will not repent. Woe to us all if we hear the words of Jesus and do not, do not, do not cry out to him, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Woe to us if we do not do that. But let me finish today by saying that you and I do not have to hear Jesus say the words, Woe to you. Because Jesus, the very one who is articulating this profound judgment for the people of Israel and for the world, is the same Jesus who in several chapters from now is going to willingly take your woe and my woe upon himself. He is going to become a curse for us because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he is going to be nailed to two pieces of wood and he is going to bleed and he is going to suffocate and he is going to die for you 
and for me. So that you and I could be forgiven and never hear the words woe, but because of his work on the cross and because of the ongoing work of the Spirit, we can be people who will one day stand before God and have him say, though you don't deserve it and though I've done everything to make it possible, well done, my good and faithful servant. I never have to hear the words woe to you because I have Jesus. And you never have to hear those words either. Not because of anything we have done, but because of what Jesus did, we can be forgiven and be called the children of God. So don't be like Capernaum, or Bethsaida, or Chorazin, or Tyre, or Sidon, or Sodom, or any other place. Don't be like them when you hear the proclamation of Jesus, repent and believe in the King. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we worship you. Your knowledge is far too grand for us to comprehend fully. And yet, Lord, we rejoice that you have given us pieces of information that make us shout praises about you. Father, we ask that you would make us humble. The Lord, we would be people who recognize that there are many things we do not know, but that, Father, you do know, and that, Father, we are small and you are great, Lord, and that we would live our lives knowing that even though we are small, you have made us sons and daughters, Lord, and walk with the spirit of contriteness, Lord. And, Lord, we ask that you would make us a people of repentance a people who repent of our sins and turn to Jesus, but also a people, Lord, who willingly hear from your word. And as sin is pointed out to us in our own lives, we quickly confess it to you, and then we embrace Jesus and enjoy we go forward in the power of your spirit. Lord, let us all here today be people who never hear the words, woe to you, but be people who hear the words, my saint, well done, good and faithful servant, I have made you my own. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.